Kia ora and welcome to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa New Zealand. And welcome to episode 41. And like our last episode, we're here today at the end of a long day from the NZIA's in situ, mini in situ conference. And joined by Michael Maltzon straight off the stage from his final chat of the day. So um, welcome, Michael. Thanks very much for making time for us. Glad to be here. And for those who weren't lucky enough that... I think there were 1,200 confirmed here today, which probably comprises about a quarter to a third of all of New Zealand's architects, all <laughs> in one room. Um, maybe you could begin with a, just a short intro and tell us a little bit about your, your work in your studio. Uh, my my studio is in Los Angeles. That's where uh, all of the work is, is done. We uh, do about 50% of our work is in uh, Los Angeles or Southern California. And about 50% of it is is in other places around North America, um, some work in Europe, uh, and an ongoing um, uh, range of work in, in China as well. So uh, Los Angeles is very much the focus and has been, I like to say, the, um, the laboratory for uh, the majority, most of uh, the ideas around the work, uh, but um, but the actual work itself and where we where we are doing projects um, is fairly um, far flung. That idea of laboratory, LA is laboratory. Um, Tasha and I, on the way here, we were talking about. We read some of the essays and things on your website. Um, very fertile experimental ground. The work, the, the you know, small selection you showed us today went from a private home to a you know, 1,200 metre long bridge. Mm. Um, you presumably don't believe that we have to be specialists as architects to practice in that kind of way. I, I'm, uh, I'm adamant that architecture um, should resist in any way possible becoming uh, highly specialized um, professionals, uh, disciplinarians. That that one of I think architecture's incredible capabilities, um, truly one of its superpowers, is is that we are extraordinary generalists, mm-hmm. and I mean that in the most profound way. That uh, if you if you look at at really how we are trained as architects, um, it's remarkable that. Uh, one discipline allows you or teaches you to take um, extremely complex, often competing uh, uh, information, to understand it, to find a way to analyze that and to understand it, um, to synthesize that into uh, a, a more directed approach, to make something of that physically. Uh, to represent it and have the tools to represent it out in public, to talk uh, about it, to advocate for those those things. Those are um, that's that's a, a a remarkable quiver of capabilities, if you will. And given how um, challenging the problems are in many cities, especially many contemporary cities, but I think cities around the globe. How many competing interests and divided uh, concerns there are, um, challenges around uh, economics, politics, uh, accessibility, um, uh, social concerns, that 
that range of capabilities that architecture can bring to the table um, is exactly what's needed to uh, create consequential change at this moment, I believe. You talked about a transition that Los Angeles is making from being a city of single family houses to a necessary shift to density. And I wondered if you could talk, since you're at the nub of this, you're building a lot of medium to high density <laughs> housing projects. Um, about the notion of housing as infrastructure and about the progress that LA is making in the sense which must feel very frustrating sometimes when you're there, but you might have a wider view of that as well. Well, Los Angeles is often thought of uh, as a um, as a sprawl metropolis, uh, a a unyielding and unending carpet of single family houses and to a large extent that is true what's interesting is is though you, you can uh go back and look at the history of that certainly post-war uh in los angeles and argue that 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 the 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 sprawl of single family houses is one of the greatest infrastructural um elements of defining elements of of the city even more so than than the highways which are always the quintessential uh identity or emblem of of the city it was a it was a huge project both in public and and private terms to produce enough housing um in a uh in, in relatively um, short time span for the growth of the metropolis, the return of uh, GIs, the expansion of, of the need for affordable housing. Over time, we came to understand what the implications of the suburbs actually were and of that enormous sprawl, what the implications were on social concerns, on sustainability and environmental concerns, on mobility concerns, amongst many other uh, challenges that it, it created. We're at a moment now where uh, the needs around housing especially um, are just as acute, if not more acute. If you look at the number of units of housing that groups like Rand Corporation um, have have said the city um, needs the deficit we have. It's staggering uh, the amount of housing that has to be built. So I think it's important to redefine how we approach housing first and foremost. If we think about housing in the in the way that we've thought about housing over the last, let's say, 25, 30 years, whether it's single family housing or whether it's multifamily housing, uh, it's largely um, been left to private developers to build um, uh, development uh, at their own schedule, uh, at the pace of whatever economics uh, they're um, are driving their motivations. The problem is 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 too great. We need to think about housing, redefine it as I believe a kind of infrastructural problem uh, to uh, bring. Um, different uh, uh, collaborations between government agencies, government funding, local, state, and federal uh, levels of, of government, together with private uh, industry, private equity, private development, um, and attack the problem in the most forceful, broadest, uh, and large-scale way. Otherwise, 
it's just going to continue to slip away from us. And uh, at that point, I think you're really talking about a growing existential crisis in the city becoming a defining crisis in the city and, uh, and, and having an effect on the viability of a city like Los Angeles into the future. Do you feel optimistic about these issues being partially solved? I um, I am generally an optimist. I think that I I think that as an architect, you almost have to have that hardwired into yourself, maybe to your own detriment at times. <laughs> but uh, I'm optimistic about the ability to solve the problem. I'm a, optimistic about the ability to face the challenge of of the problem. I can't say that I'm um, uh, optimistic necessarily about um, whether we will face those challenges uh, and and deal with the problem in, in, at the at the scale and level that it needs to be to be dealt with. I'm optimistic because I've seen um, I've seen uh, the city take on genuine challenges and and do large things we just finished the um or we finished the first phase we of the sixth street viaduct which is an, uh, a huge it's the largest bridge project the city has ever taken on four thousand feet long um it's taken almost 10 years to from the time we won the competition to complete the bridge the public spaces underneath the bridge, all of the parks are just starting to be constructed now. But uh, that was a project that, quite frankly, very few people thought could be completed by the city, could be completed by a larger collective of public and private um, firms, agencies, organizations. Uh, and certainly, I think there was very little belief that it could be um, completed in a way that it would represent um, the city uh, at, a, at a real way, in a real way, in an aesthetic and social way. I, I don't think people believe that that was going to happen. And the bridge is now open. So if you can do that, I think it's important, not because it shows that you can accomplish it necessarily, but I think it, it more than anything, it gives you the reason to not let, let people off the hook. Um, to say, oh, it's too difficult. It's going to take too long. It's too much money. It's We're too divided right now. All of those things are true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that has to define whether you can do something or not. Are you seeing that, that project as having a catalytic effect on any of the other developments around that area? In terms of I think it's too early to say, well, it definitely has have had an effect over the last 10 years since the project was announced on a lot of private development happening in in mostly the arts district, what's called the arts district, that side, the west side of, of the river. Um, it, uh, though, is just now entering its, its life, its conversation with the city. Um, uh, as it's completed, as it's been completed in, in the last few weeks. And it's been complicated. Uh, the city has, been, the, the bridge has been incredibly um, 
visible, has been embraced by um, communities. It's been, become a destination um, uh, for people across the city. There's been an intense sense of, of connection that people have with the bridge. There have been uh, problems at the bridge as well. Um, there have been uh, the, um, people racing across the bridge and climbing on the bridge and um, uh, people have been using it in ways that um, are, are less than, than beneficial um, for themselves more than anything, but for the community as a whole. That's really now, that was a couple of weeks, it almost felt like a, a, a sort of feral uh, celebration um, of the bridge. Um, the community seems to really be now back embracing and using the bridge. And what I've seen over this past month is that uh, all of the complex, multiple, and deeply passionate ways in which people are connecting to the bridge, uh, I, I think are an indication that something like a piece of infrastructure can speak to people in a way that uh, it becomes um, the way that they connect to the city as a whole. I've started to say that I think the bridge actually has become the city. When you talk about this idea of housing as infrastructure, what I'm hearing is that you're really you're talking about housing becoming the sort of social and economic infrastructure that actually provides uh, almost like a leverage for a better way of life. Is that how you see it? I think I, I just I see it as um, as the essential ingredient in terms of the overall life of a city. And whether that was a city in the 1950s and 1960s that lived in a particular way, um, where the car was the, the really the driver, well, ironically the driver, uh, of, of social life, work life um, in Southern California, or whether it's a new type of, of of housing, a denser, multifamily version of, of, of housing. Uh, housing defines us. It defines the way that we live. It defines for multiple generations um, how they hope to live in a city. And increasingly, it's becoming um, the, a question of whether people can live in the city. Um, younger generations of, of Angelinos are having a harder and harder time living in the city. It's not a problem that is, of course, specific to LA. You see it in many cities, but they're being priced out of being able to live in 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 the cities that they would like to live in and work in. And so, um, we have to find approaches and solutions uh, to the problem. I don't think it's a one size fits all solution either. Uh, one of my hopes in Los Angeles is that more and more architects continue to take on housing as a challenge and develop multiple approaches to it. Uh, I don't think that there's one way to do it. And in fact, uh, if, if Los Angeles uh, believes in its ability to be one of the creative leaders in, in architecture, then we shouldn't look to other cities necessarily for models and paradigms. 
uh, for things like housing. We should try to invent it on our own terms. And I think if we do that, then we are creating something that you can uh, that moves back out in the world and becomes um, a part of of the the larger range of, of, of solutions and paradigms and, and typologies for people to um, think about their own cities through. It sometimes seems, not just in LA, but any kind of Western city, that the only way capitalism knows how to provide housing is through gentrification, in a sense. Um, I know that in the last year, the federal government's passed this big infrastructure bill, and I wondered if there's any opportunities for architects there where those um, where the infrastructure bill provides an opportunity to short circuit gentrification and provide housing that's affordable um, or accessible for those people who need it. My sense is in the first round of infrastructure money that it's unlikely that uh, we would be able to redefine housing broadly enough that you could build enough housing under the infrastructure bill um, to make a significant dent in the, the, the actual metrics of the housing challenge. But I do think that there are opportunities within that bill to uh, find ways to create hybrid approaches to infrastructure where, for instance, housing can be a part of a bridge project. Housing can be uh, a part of a power plant project. Um, housing can be a part of uh, a water reclamation project. That's a, a place that I hope architects can um, uh, push themselves into. Those are conversations that, that architects have to work to forcibly find some role in. And if you can produce a, a few dozen projects, maybe, that uh, point to how infrastructure can be redefined um, and how housing can be redefined, that allows you to then, in a second round and a third round, point to successes um, where it's not... Um, it's not some kind of harebrained scheme. It's not a fiction. Uh, it, it's uh, it's actually real, and and that's one of the beauties of actually being able to build architecture, even if it's a very small project that has high aspirations. It gives you the opportunity to point to it and say, it, it, "Okay, maybe it's not at the scale of a thousand units, but it's been actually done here, um, even in a small." A, a small project and that's always uh, a forceful tool to be able to see it's been to be able to say it's been done once mm. uh, people react to that so you're playing the long game then in <laughs> I think you have to play the long game as um, as impatient as I am <laughs> uh, at a lot of levels I think you have to be realistic and I think you have to play the long game and I also think the long game is important in terms of something I touched on before, which is to invent new approaches and models and paradigms and typologies that are specific to the culture that you're making them in. I think one of the worst things we could do in Los Angeles in the face of this broad crisis is to panic and import models from other cities uh, that um, are expedient 
but don't necessarily relate to the culture of 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 what Los Angeles is and what it can become. I think our responsibility is to try to is to force ourselves um, to push ourselves to develop models that are um, uh, are unique models to to that place. Um, and if you can do that, then I think you're really doing your job. You're broadening the territory. You're not narrowing the territory of what what constitutes housing in North America. Um, you're expanding that. Um, in the same way that in the 70s, a group of architects, uh, Tom Main, um, Frank Gehry, Eric Moss, Craig Hodgetts, uh, uh, Robert Mangurian, Coy Howard, they expanded what we thought architecture was. When those buildings were built, whether they were modest housing houses or small installations, radical uses of material, it blew people's minds uh, because nobody expected architecture to be able to be that. Uh, and I, I, it transformed uh, what we thought architecture could be. And I think it also transformed what we thought architects were. Uh, the more that we can um, remember that as, as a model and, and to try to invest our work with the same sense of the possible, uh, the more I think we're doing um, justice to what uh, architecture can be, uh, what the discipline of architecture is. And I think there is a difference between the profession and the discipline. When you asked if I'm optimistic, I'm, I've never been more optimistic in terms of what I think the discipline can bring to and for the world. I'm more skeptical of what the profession is, is um, these days and how it's working um, in these challenges. And uh, I think that idea of the discipline of architecture challenging itself constantly, looking both back at its history and all of those accomplishments, but also challenging itself to um, uh, move beyond the expected at times, um, uh, moving beyond the uh, technically um, uh, normal approaches to, to making architecture. I think that's one of the responsibilities of being an architect in the discipline, of moving the discipline forward. It's funny, Mario talked about that a little bit. He talked about the you know the books he's written that look back those historical precedents for designing around climate and from <laughs> climate. There's a there's a phrase in Tadeo Māori here, Kamoa Kamori, which means we um, we walk backwards into the future. <laughs> so I've always kind of loved this. It's a real gift of a phrase that 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 tension between right, that look right. back on a on a swerve from housing, and I know many. I know with many of the interviews you've done here, people have drawn the parallels between some of the things that LA is, is going through and Auckland is going through. But the uh, museum and cultural centre that you talked about in Winnipeg, Winnipeg, the, the Inuit Arts Centre. Yeah. Now you talked about um, you mentioned you made mention of consulting with the Indigenous elders mm. as part of the process. Uh, that's certainly something that is increasingly becoming vital to the realisation of the full potential of projects here mm -hmm. in New Zealand and I don't know how much you know 
about our, you know, how the historic context of that. But I'd be very keen to hear more about what that process is like. Is it a is it a mandated process? Is it a process you choose as part of the completeness yeah. of your of your method? Well, does it happen in LA? You, you know, I, I don't, and, and I, I don't have uh, um, a deep understanding of of. Uh, how that conversation is evolving in New Zealand, but I, I have a sense that it is uh, a conversation that is very much at the forefront of of um, how culture and society is is um, is debating uh, about its history and about its its future. And those um, conversations and those debates, I think, are happening really. A, in many many cities and many places across uh, across the globe at this point they're they're hugely important conversations and and uh, and debates to have and for 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 many um, understandable and obvious reasons we in in the project in in um, in Winnipeg uh, the Discussions that were happening between, um, especially uh, councils of, of of Inuit elders and the museum, had been taking place over a number of years in informal and increasingly formal and structured ways. The Winnipeg Art Gallery um, had been collecting um, art of the North, uh, in, Inuit art, uh, really from around the time of the Second World War. And it's a longer um, story of, of how that collection really began. Um, but it, uh, over the years, started to form um, an integral part of the way that the, they thought about the identity of, of the museum separate from the larger conversation happening in Canada as a whole. Uh, when our project began, which has now been 10 years, uh, the debate around uh, reparations, um, the relationship of, of the communities in the North to Canada as a whole, um, were starting to, really just starting to um, uh, take form and to become uh, priority conversations in in that were that were uh, uniting um, conversations across the country and um, that grew the uh, work that we were doing not just in design but in 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 broadening um, the input uh, back and forth between the Inuit artists and and their their community and cultural leaders and and the museum project that broadened it in um, in significant ways it really really amplified it because it started to become clear that as the largest collection of Inuit art in the world uh, contemporary Inuit art in the world that the Winnipeg Project was going to, in some ways, become almost a kind of national museum um, for for Canada. And so the interest from the national government, the provincial government, uh, became much stronger as well. Um, I think it, 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 it wasn't a complicated process, actually. It was a process where everybody just 
everybody started listening to each other and listening to each other in a regular enough way, not once every year or every, you know, quarter, but regularly. Uh, it, the influence was was a, a natural uh, outcome on the project of those conversations. It also was an opportunity for everybody to build uh, uh, both a level of trust and a, um, a common language about the project. You know, at, at times I think as architects we think everybody understands what it is what we're talking about, but often they don't. Even when you're talking to artists who you think must share some kind of common language because of uh, visual commonality, it's not true necessarily. Um, that's a presumption that that uh, we need to make sure we we move beyond. Uh, and and I think that was one of the most important things. I began to understand our team began to understand what. Um, was at stake and what uh, what the Inuit artists and the community meant when they said certain things and I think they began to trust and understand what it was that we were saying about the project and uh, it became a process where um, the the project I think is a direct result of, of that back and forth um, it has to happen early uh, it has to happen in a genuine enough way. It has to happen regularly. Um, and we can't be afraid to say uh, what we mean. And we can't be afraid to admit to what we don't know about about things. Um, and I, I think if you say what it is that you mean and believe in, that people understand that implicitly and they respect you for it they might disagree but they they uh they respect you for it in that sense it's not that much different than when we're trying to build projects in los angeles and a community or a neighborhood is upset and you're doing you're pissed off that you're trying to build something in their neighborhood and they don't they don't want it uh and they feel like you're going to come to them and you're going to try to uh, do some kind of Houdini thing and make them believe something they don't want to believe in. Our approach is to tell them what it is we're trying to do and to be very open and forthright about it. And they often don't agree with you, but at least you establish the basis of the ability to have a conversation and maybe even the basis of, of some level of trust between each other. Mm. It's amazing how <clears throat> how often in discussions today and in all the guests we have on, uh, in some way how little time we spend on design and how much we spend on legislation, relationships, mm. uh, co-design, collaboration, listening, learning, all of those kind of things. Mm. Sounds super applicable here. And just like that, our 30 minutes has whizzed by. <laughs> Michael, thank you. It's been a fantastic chat. Um, thank you so much for coming out uh, to speak to the whole group today. And thanks for making time to um, speak to us today. It's been absolutely fantastic. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. We've talked about uh, me trying to come here for a while. 
Um, it's taken a long time. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here. I can't wait to uh, explore more of the country. Take up Jeremy's recommendations. I always extreme. He's a gourmand. He's a man of great we're, taste. We're, we're following them to the letter of the law. Excellent. Thanks very much. All right. Thank Thanks, you. Michael.